Welcome to Massage Matas podcast. Me and Maria Mazzieri, Max Casbrook, and Becky Demo Horton from the Massage Collective are here to bring a little bit of evidence-based practice into soft tissue therapy, massage therapy, and all manual therapy. excited today because we have with us Daniel Lawrence. Daniel Lawrence, for those of you who are not uh, aware of him, is a physiotherapist, educator, creator of the physio channel on YouTube, author of lower limb tendinopathy and the lead educator for Rock Tape UK. Today, Daniel is here with his physio author hat, as we'll be chatting to him about exercise for pain relief, which is the title of Daniel's course, which just started this month, and the next one will be next month, but also is the author, is the title of his new book, which is going to be due out later this year. Today, we're going to be talking about exercise for pain relief. So, Dan, how did you came about to research and to look into, to write about exercise for pain relief? Yes, certainly. Well, um, quite simply, I couldn't find anything decent to watch on Netflix. So, <laughs> I thought, well, how about I write a book? Um Now, to be a bit more serious, in clinic, I was finding that patients who were doing what I would class as really good exercises with good parameters and performing performing them with a good form were often failing to get the results they wanted and were not getting on well with an exercise intervention. At the same time, there was a group of patients that I was collectively sort of building up in my mind, you know, thinking about that patient last Thursday and that patient last month who were doing what we might class as rather awful exercises, but swearing by them and getting great results. And I also listened to some lectures at a conference where some surgeons were speaking about shoulder surgery and they were having somewhat a similar experience, but with surgery rather than exercise. So They would do what they would class as really good, perfect surgery, and the patients would be rather dissatisfied with the outcome. And then other times they would comment that they would do uh, or see surgery, which, you know, they they classed as not so successful, not so good, um, you know, rather, rather rubbish is one of the terms that was used. And yet those patients were over the moon and thought the surgery was fantastic because they had great outcomes from it. So I thought there's something going on here. There's a there's a mismatch between between what we're doing and the patient's experiences. At the same time, outside the clinic, in the industry, uh, in in our industry, I've noticed that uh, a lot of people are bolting on education to really increase their knowledge of of, uh, exercise prescription, to increase their knowledge of strength and conditioning. And there's some wonderful educators out there providing some really solid education. But I thought there's, there's a bit of a mismatch here because you can give somebody a perfect strength and conditioning program and you're not giving it to them for strength and conditioning. You're giving it to them for pain relief. And therefore, the way we approach exercise for pain relief is often different and sometimes entirely different to how you approach exercise for 
performance enhancement. So exercise to run a marathon faster, exercise to get fitter, exercise to get stronger. The way you approach that is, is entirely different than exercise just to reduce a patient's pain. And, and with that, it comes an improvement in their function and in, in their daily activities as well. So the way we approach it is very different. Therapeutic exercise, our class is very different than, than uh, performance-based exercise. And that's why it was exercise for pain relief and not exercise for strength and conditioning or exercise for, for weight loss, for example. So that's what got me interested in the topic. And that's, uh, that's what was the catalyst to getting me started. And that might be really interesting for some of our listeners, because obviously, Daniel, we've got a fairly broad spectrum of people listening, some soft tissue therapists that are really well versed with um, exercise rehab and, and that side of things, and some um, that won't be as well versed with it. And I know speaking to therapists when that, you know, it's well evidenced now that we need to be doing more than just hands on therapies with our clients um, and and therapists know they need to get their clients moving get them doing some sort of exercise but it can be a little bit intimidating sometimes because if you don't come from that exercise prescription background I hear from a lot of therapists you know well I'm I'm nervous about telling them to do anything because what if I tell them to do their squat wrong or you know like you say there's that real focus in the industry or has been that real focus about specificity of exercise and also the way in which it's performed so that's really I guess encouraging for and liberating a little bit for therapists to understand isn't it that perhaps it's more about I don't know what is it more about do you think the the client's attitude towards the movement the how much they enjoy it yes uh, absolutely Becky what, what you said there's so important when it comes to exercise for performance measures it very much is about specificity to really ingrain the science to make sure that the exercise programs are efficiently meeting the the athletes demands but when it comes to exercise for pain relief uh, specificity really does take a battering in the research time and time again the research has shown that specificity doesn't seem to be a key thing for patients um, classic examples include Core, core work and core stability for lower back pain. The research shows that that's no better than general exercise. And a, another recent study showed that walking was just as good as exercise for lower back pain. Now, uh, you know, that's a very interesting study individually, but it also helps to outline that overall theoretical concept. I would say walking is exercise, but um, I see what they were trying to get at with this study. And um, I'm teaching tonight about shoulder rehabilitation. And when you look at shoulder pain, shoulder pain syndrome, we often term it um, uh, impingement, you know, those types of terminologies. But the rehabilitation for that, which can be wonderfully complex, and you see all these fancy movements on Instagram, etc. And as you just alluded to, Becky, if you're not from that exercise world, or you're trying to step into it to offer that service to your clients, you're going to feel rather intimidated and threatened by all of the complexity. And if the patient doesn't get better, or they continue to experience pain, you're going to have that horrible imposter syndrome feeling where you've done something wrong and it's all your fault, whereas in reality, it most likely isn't. So when it comes to shoulder rehab, for example, the research shows that one simple exercise done very simply with a kind of blanket uniform approach in comparison to a more complex approach to rehabbing a shoulder, the single exercise approach was just as good and arguably better. Um, that's a very interesting study I will be referring to tonight by um, Chris Littlewood and, and colleagues 
uh, a multi-center trial, really interesting study to have a look at. Uh, again, it's just one example that h- highlights the overall the overall yeah. concept. Yeah. In terms of what it's about, <clears throat> so we could say it's not about specificity, it's not about reps and sets. The research shows us that those things are less important for exercise, for pain relief. In terms of what it's about, that's a, a fantastic question, but it's a huge question because it's about so much. I suppose if we try to answer it more uh, like concisely, we could say it's about the individual and therefore we're left with the complexity of the individual. But if we start there, then then that's a good starting point. So are we saying then, Daniel, that the exercise for pain relief is is on a spectrum alongside with with sort of you know pain relief at one end and s and c for performance at another or are we saying that actually they are so non-equivalent that they're actually two totally different frameworks like is it is it a slider that i can move alongside when i've got a client in pain who i improve and they then want to get better at the activity perhaps that caused them pain in the first place or is it that i have to have two sort of separate program ideas in my head that i'm going to get them out of pain then I'm going to change tack and get them get them back to uh, to performance. Yeah, I think I'm going to go for the slider option, Matt. Uh, there's there's um, uh, an overlap between the two. There's a definite overlap between the two, and and therefore I'm going to go for the slider option, which I think is is good. I don't think trying to kind of separate them entirely would would make sense because right from the very beginning there is an overlap. Um, at the end of the day, after we've you know got the patient on board and discussed all of the complexities, we still need to give the patient an exercise. You know, we need to start somewhere, and and that's always a concern for therapists who aren't familiar with exercise rehabilitation. Is you know where do you start? You've got to start with something. You know, this exercise, that exercise, it can all get very confusing. So we can certainly draw upon biomechanics and strength and conditioning when we choose our one exercise to try and choose. The, uh, the most efficient option and the option that's going to, you know, be the most beneficial for, for the patient. So there's definitely an overlap. And I like your idea of the slider um, as you move from exercise to pain relief into the performance zone. Into the performance zone for, for, for people that are looking for performance. Um, but I was thinking maybe for people that are looking less for performance and more for like lifestyle change, that there's been a lot of talk and discussion about uh, social prescription and social exercise at the moment. I saw a study pop up today to do with uh, social exercise prescription and dementia being a better option than medication. So when when we finished working with our patient one-to-one on the exercise basis, should we focus on specificity and reps and sets and giving them a, a, a perfect scientific program, which, which is, you know, no bad idea at all? Or should we think for this person that's less performance, less concerned about performance, should we perhaps try and create something more sustainable for them, which involves uh, more more social and more lifestyle changes? Uh, that, that's the sort of thing that I've been considering with with our patients because you know adherence is always a problem isn't it and it's something which is uh, always worth considering to see how we can help people with that 
So is it worth just touching on, I appreciate we've, we've spoken quite a while already because we've we've already jumped into some good diversions, but is it worth just touching on, Daniel, what what do we, and, and, and again, I know this is a massive subject, um, what do we think is going on here? And why, do, I know in your book, you've really touched on why this works for some people and, and doesn't appear to have the same effect on others. So I wonder if you could just touch on, um, sort of as simply as possible, what 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 are the um, potential mechanisms behind exercise for pain relief, and what are the some of the theories as to why some groups respond better to others? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Becky, for that big question and not an easy one. I must say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I will get you back. Uh, now, there's many. Uh, theories as to how exercise for pain relief works and they again it may be some have some individuality so for some people it may be very much physiology and for others very much psychology and that that mix would vary between individuals but I wondered if today we might focus a bit more on on exercise induced hypoalgesia so that's effectively what we're talking about exercise induced reductions in in pain sensitivity and for that there are a selection of systems which are um, thought to be responsible for offering that type of, uh, of, of relief and of pain relief. So many people have probably have heard of descending inhibition. And here we can refer to the endogenous opioid system. We've all heard of opioids, the strongest form of pain relief that we can get prescribed. Well, of course, our body has its own internal system. And the, the endogenous opioid system is one of the most discussed in the research for how exercise kicks off that pain relief, that reduction in sensitivity effect. And it's thought to do that from an increase in blood pressure. So an increase in blood pressure brings about these positive changes. Uh, you may have heard it colloquially referred to as the runner's high, for example, and people experiencing not just pain relief, but you know euphoria and positive, the positive mood. Uh, and feelings of health from exercise probably come from the same systems that offer us the, the, the analgesia from exercise as well. There's the endocannabinoid system, which I think is getting a bit more uh, interest in the media at the moment because of the uh, CBD oils, etc., that are becoming popular in, in um, you know, places like uh, well, health food shops and so on. People are starting to, to get into those. I'm not familiar with the research surrounding whether those uh, products work, but they are tapping into that endocannabinoid system. There's also the serotonergic system, very easy word to say, uh, which has less research around it, but we're all familiar with serotonin, red wine, chocolate, you know, and the link there. Yes, there's Beck is very, Beck is very, very familiar with red wine and chocolate, yeah. especially <laughs> in lockdown. <laughs> there's the nor the noradrenergic system as well and then we can look at the immune system and the the autonomic nervous system as well of which we've got the parasympathetic and the sympathetic divisions influences on all of those can have an effect on on the analgesia so that that it's not a case of it's this definitely but those are the mechanisms that are discussed in the research for how we can achieve analgesia with with exercise and um, yeah, so that's a, a brief introduction. I, I don't know if you have some more questions that you want to steer that with. Well, I mean, I've I've got a question that that you can you can totally throw back at me and, and say it's totally irrelevant, but uh, popped into my brain. Um, so 
the 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 mechanism of increased blood pressure is actually quite interesting in terms of stimulating the release of the opioids uh, that that we that we think's going on. Have you come across anything in the research that suggests, therefore, that a greater change in blood pressure is more easily translated to a release in opioids? So, for example, if someone has high blood pressure already, would they find it more difficult to achieve opioid release through exercise and that someone who has more generally low blood pressure would find it easier? Or is that a total red herring? Mm. I'm not sure about the high and low blood pressure. Uh, I didn't come across that with any of the reading that I've been doing, but I can tell you a few things around uh, the intensity of the exercise in relation to blood pressure. And I can speak about how how that the opioid release can also be affected by how the individual is is you know going about their exercise or not going about their exercise. So if we take uh, exercise induced hypoalgesia, that reduction in sensitivity, we we know that um, 70% of, if, if they want to exercise cardiovascularly, then it's suggested that that should be at around 70% of their maximum capacity, uh, the maximum uh, VO2 max, should I say. So about 70%, which is a, 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 you know, a moderate level where you would still be able to have a conversation, but still be significantly increase in breathing rate and so on. Now, that means people don't have to really push themselves. It means they don't have to engage in HIIT training and really exhaust themselves. And a lot of patients will probably be quite surprised at how that 70% is actually quite a comfortable level to work at. And they don't need to be you know, red in the face and sweating as they're cycling up a hill, for example. That would be in excess of what is necessary to achieve the analgesic response. When it comes to resistance training, they can actually work at an even lower rate. They can work at uh, somewhere in the region of 10 to 30% of their maximum strength, which is really very low. We're looking here at muscular endurance and they need to uh, consider pushing themselves to muscular fatigue according to the, the research. But of course, in reality, they may not need to do that. They may not be comfortable doing that. But again, they don't need to be lifting really heavy weights. And most patients hopefully would be pleasantly surprised that they could engage in weight training and resistance training, which feels perfectly manageable for them. Now, another interesting thing that the research shows, and, and you, you may have experienced this yourselves personally, and of course with your patients, is people that don't exercise regularly, when they do exercise, they may not get that analgesic response immediately or as clearly or as quickly as we would like them to. There was one thing mentioned in the research about opioid tone, and it's believed that people that exercise regularly have an increased opioid tone, which means they're going to hit exercise-induced reductions in pain sensitivity easier, quicker, and more regularly than people who don't exercise regularly. So it's not a case of just exercise once and there you go. We can hope for a positive experience, but people who exercise regularly are going to be better at modulating pain using their own body's systems than those who don't exercise as as regularly we discussed when we had the chat uh, when i had the chat with you dan we we discussed about how different uh, people different subgroup of people experience the pain relief uh, more than other or in fact uh, we can actually say that 
different subgroup is a group of people would have increased pain after exercise and then that so what what does make the difference then what what, what did you find uh, within your research yes um that's yeah absolutely a, a great question so um i've got a, a long list here of people who may, who may suffer from the negative effects of what we call dysfunctional exercise induced hyperalgesia and of course the other term is exercise induced hyperalgesia which um is the opposite but does sound very very similar so people have that dysfunctional eih and they're the ones that we're that we're referring to and the the groups in the research the groups include individuals suffering from fibromyalgia chronic fatigue syndrome um shoulder myalgia which just refers to a general shoulder pain it's not a specific pathology painful knee osteoarthritis diabetic neuropathy chronic neck pain and whiplash associated disorder it's interesting that the groups aren't always as clear-cut as you'd think so chronic neck pain tends to suffer those individuals suffer from a dysfunctional exercise induced hyperalgesia and you'd expect therefore that chronic lower back pain patients would also suffer but but they don't they as a group lower back pain patients tend to do better with exercises compared to chronic neck pain patients and you know that's interesting my experiences in the clinic don't mirror what's in the research but that's what the research shows and, and is, there's no clear differentiator between the two because neck and back pain have very strong biopsychosocial links and causes to the problem so you'd expect them to fall into into the same category but that's what the research says of course in practice people aren't going to fit perfectly into those pocketed silos um in terms of the why it may fail well there's a whole list of things including family history of of chronic pain the family environment catastrophizing mood disturbance age past experiences level of education social influence, exercise perception, kinesiophobia, forced exercise versus voluntary exercise, which is an an interesting point to discuss. And within that exercise, which is externally paced or exercise, which is self-paced as well. Um, Those two things can make a difference. There's quite a lot of research around family and therefore the social influence of how this can make a significant difference. And I think it's because the the family environment is highly influential on our thoughts and on our learning. And it can also include, uh, you know, other friends as well, not just people that are related to us. And it may be referred to as like a social contagion as people vicariously learn and pick up information from other people, which may not be entirely correct, but that's how these things, bits of information can pass on. And this is little simple things can significantly change people's behavior this idea of um you know rest if it's painful and uh you know don't exercise if it hurts these sort of things can can easily be passed on through the family and create a cascade of events which leads to the person not engaging with exercise and movement when they are experiencing some some pain and uh, and and discomfort as well uh Things like socioeconomic status is quite, can often be quite a sensitive topic, but I think we need to delve into that a little bit more. And I think it can come down to what you mentioned um, just before we started, uh, Anna Maria, is about autonomy as well. So 
if people have more autonomy in their life, they have the ability, they have more control. And I've certainly met many patients with chronic conditions that are caused by their lack of autonomy. You know, they, they haven't got a choice to stop. And Social to determinants to health uh, is yeah. something that we need to be looking at because I know that this is going to sound really cliche, Dan, but I know everybody said, oh, we're all in the same boat. Well, actually, we're all in the same... St- I read somewhere, I love that, so we're all in the same storm, but in very, very, very different boats. And this was during the COVID crisis but also now with the, with the distribution of vaccines. Uh, social determinants to health is something that we really need to, uh, at government level, need to start tackling because I think the COVID crisis brought some dreadful, uh, unavoidable, you know, dreadful and avoidable um, inequalities brought them very much to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. There always has been, in the research, a strong link between job autonomy and chronic pain, for example. Uh, can, I, can I go back? Really, I find, uh, we discussed already, you know, weeks ago when we chatted, but I find these differences in certain groups that the way they respond to pain. First of all, because I see them at clinic, I see your EMI client, your post-pyrophilic client. What I find really interesting that, Actually, uh, well, this is really related to what we're going through now with the long COVID, okay? And this is going to be very, very useful to some of our listeners. So, as you said, research is there. Research has been there for a while that patients with uh, post-viral fatigue, patients with ME, do not respond well, not even to graded exposure. In fact, there was a... I think very recently there was a survey completed by an academic group in Oxford Brookes um, University and that they published that they found that 80% of people with ME reporting having adverse effects following graded exposure. And following that survey published, NSC actually changed their own guidelines and they say it's not that we shouldn't do it, but we should be very, very, very careful. The link now with long COVID and uh, we're writing now guidelines to to help soft tissue therapists and therapists to cope with long COVID. And then we have to be very, very careful because something is having a long co- a client suffering with post-COVID symptoms. But there is a time where the post-COVID symptoms may become chronic fatigue, may become post-viral fatigue syndrome, may actually cross over then even further to go become a me. And in that bridge, in that temporary time, if we are not very careful to understand the person we go in front of us and, and the research that is out there, we might be the ones who make them cross over to post-viral chronic fatigue or to ME because we might be using that exercise because we think, oh, my God, they're fatigued, they're deconditioned, they need to go back to activity. And usually we will say we apply a bit of gradual exposure, we we look what the, the, the effects are 24 hours after and we move with that. We have to be even more careful with those group of people because they come from being a post-COVID sufferers with fatigue. And if we are not careful the way we apply exercise, 
we actually can be the responsible one for making them pass into post-viral fatigue. So I think we... Uh, I think we need to be very, very careful. And exercise is, to understand, exercise is superb for pain relief. But there there are some subgroup of people for which we have to be much more careful. We need to understand that there are pathophysiologies per se, which they need more care. It's not a musculoskeletal problem. It's, it's a pathophysiology person. We need to be very, very careful because they, they system react differently. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a very interesting topic and certainly one that we can, we can um, discuss a few things to say. Uh, I, I would though, uh, Anna Maria, if I may, I'm going to disagree with you because you said that you know you need to be careful that you you and referring to your listeners could be the ones responsible for moving people from having that post viral issue to chronic fatigue and maybe further down. But I'm disagreeing because I don't think you would. Uh, I don't think I don't think I know you personally, and I know you wouldn't because you're far too clued up on the research and the evidence. And and I believe that many of your listeners also won't because that's the very reason that they're that they're your listeners in the first place. Um, and also, I think that we as therapists who have more time with our patients are going to be the ones which stop them going over that step and that, that help the patient. Because from very early on with the, with the um, post-acute COVID-19, the, the long COVID, uh, and I like to try not to call it long COVID, everybody knows of it, but it's, 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 it's a myth because they actually, of course, have not got COVID anymore. It's post-acute COVID-19. Um, so that's the first myth is that, you know, those patients don't have COVID and most unlikely to. And in the very early days, I was surprised from what I've read that a lot of, um, you know, primary medical providers, GPs, not only didn't recognise the post-acute COVID-19 symptoms, but due to the whole setup and stresses on the healthcare system, those patients would often be uh, turned away or, or ignored. I believe that situation has now changed and uh, primary medical care is more aware of COVID-19 and is, is more able to help patients with it. And you hear about the setting up of long COVID centres and things like that, which, which you know, is ultimately fantastic. But in reality, um, you know, I haven't known anybody that's been to these centres and the, um, the access to these centres in reality may may be limited or may not be there when when patients need them so as with chronic pain a lot of patients with chronic pain step out of the national health service and go looking in the private sector many of them may be your patients so therefore you know we've people in the private sector have improved their pain knowledge to help their patients and i've uh, we had some students who who i know uh, practice up north and they set up a clinic thinking that it would be a sports therapy clinic and they actually ended up with a chronic pain clinic effectively because lots of people in their community came for them and they ended up having to learn more about chronic pain than they did sports injuries because those patients weren't getting what they wanted from from the local health service and it's the same with with long covid if there is going to be a large cache of patients i think many of them are going to move into the private sector that has more more time to offer them for a condition which isn't just going to go away with a quick prescription or with a couple of physiotherapy sessions. And you're quite right when you mentioned um, you mentioned uh, fatigue, chronic fatigue. A lot of the research 
and suggestions for how to manage long uh, long COVID, sorry, post-acute COVID-19, come from the management of chronic fatigue. And they, they include pacing. And also, I, I know you, you've done training and you're very interested in, in breathing and breathing patterns. So they, they cover breathing patterns and dealing with breathlessness, and they cover uh, pacing and dealing with fatigue. And you're quite right, exercise needs to be approached very cautiously because groups, chronic fatigue groups and groups with uh, conditions like fibromyalgia, for example, haven't got a great relationship with exercise and they haven't got a great relationship with any therapists who's, who've tried to force ex- exercise upon them as well. But so, that's why, um, yes, that's why we, we created, because I, I totally agree, the multidisciplinary clinic that the NHS are building up, that, that would be ideal, but we know we're expecting, let's say we're expecting that because of logistics and because of resources, there might be people falling through the gaps, which they will be looking for private healthcare or even for us to work around the NHS pathway. But that's where maybe I didn't express it myself. That's where I really urge strong, strong caution on advising exercises to those people or the type of exercises, because that's where you can overload the system more than it can cope with. Um, I, I, would say, I would say to sort of to, to Daniel's point there, particularly with the pacing and then the understanding that we have from, from when we talk chronic pain, fibromyalgia, et cetera, it sounds like there's actually a, <clears throat> a good translation there you know, you, we've almost got a model we can work on in terms of understanding that pacing, understanding how we can um, gradually, gradually uh, <laughs> expose expose our clients um, who may be in this post-acute COVID-19 um, sort of cohort uh, to the exercise. And so actually, I, I not that I particularly disagree with our, our, our guests on a regular basis, uh, but I actually really agree with Daniel there in that actually we, we, I, think, I think we probably have a, a really good model already in place, at least from which to start uh, and not risk any, any issues. Yeah, I'd agree, man. Uh, a while ago I put together, uh, not that long ago actually, there's a video on the Physio channel, if I may mention it, and the video is, um, is, is about long COVID. It's about um, post-acute COVID-19. And it's to serve a dual purpose of helping people that may be suffering from it, but also for therapists. And I wanted, if, if say somebody with this post-acute came to see you or one of the listeners, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful opportunity there to help that individual. And I wouldn't want one of the listeners to be unnecessarily fearful of helping that individual. Uh, when they could actually probably significantly help them with some simple interventions using a framework that are already in place and, you know, provide some some really life-changing advice and help for that individual um, with the backstop of understanding the, the serious symptoms, red flags, when to refer. But referring somebody like that just back to their primary care provider may may not be in the best interest of the patient if they haven't got any other serious symptoms alongside. No, and it, it, when, when I mentioned that, uh, this is not what I was thinking about. I was thinking we need to be very, very careful that while exercise can be absolutely no problem for somebody with normal deconditioning, somebody that is post-fatigue, for, sorry, post-viral, 
it might have much more serious consequences and because evidence is, is telling us telling us so that is even graded exposure is not as straightforward with the subgroup of chronic fatigue or any patients that it would be normally. I think I think um, I'm, I'm going to use a really random segue here, so bear with me on this one because we're going to segue back to, to to something that I'm really keen to ask ask, ask Daniel about from the book. But so I think when we're talking about um, sort of graded exposure versus pacing, for me, and you might disagree, Daniel, but I see those as actually quite different. Um, I, I see I'd use graded exposure in a more um, perhaps a more acute setting, whereas I'd use pay, uh, um, pacing in perhaps a more persistent setting. Um, and from from a, you know, you, I suppose you could ask, what's the difference? And maybe we, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of arguing over no difference at all there. But um, someone who is particularly good at speaking uh, around pacing is Pete Moore uh, with his pain toolkit. And, and for any of our listeners who haven't come across Pete Moore, I'd recommend if you're if you're interested in in, in more discussions around pacing, Pete Moore is um, uh, a a, pay, a patient with pain advocate, uh, and he talks an awful lot about his journey. Um, now, this is the random segue because Pete Moore uh, was part of a panel um, a couple of I'm trying to remember a month or two ago now um, uh, on Le Pub Scientifique uh, with Kathleen Sluka who is one of the authors that you reference in your in your book, in your chapter on this, back on the increasing the opioid tone. Do you see that? That was a, I think that was a good segue. No one else is agreeing with me, by the way, guys. I, I knew I referenced Sluka Summer when you said the, said the name. So, uh, yeah, yeah, thank you for reminding it was, me. It was, no, no, so it's on the opioid tone thing. Now, yeah. Now, what, what um, uh, Dr. Sluka was, was talking about at um, Le Pub was, uh, you know, talking about this research that you've obviously covered and, 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 and discussed in, in detail in the book. But one of the interesting bits that came up, and, and this is kind of where I want to sort of ask, ask your opinion now is, it was, okay, so how is this clinically relevant? How is the understanding that opioid tone, if, if, if we can call it that, this idea that people who exercise more are likely to get more benefit sooner <laughs> than those perhaps who aren't as familiar with, with, uh, with exercise and may require a little bit longer before they start getting that equivalent of a runner's high knowing that how do we take someone who has persistent pain who isn't familiar with exercise but for whom we believe that is the right way forward in helping produce that exercise induced hypoallergesia now one of the topics that came up in the conversation um, was regarding the use of things like tens machines um, and almost doing a, a form of using tens to help get the, the person moving and then slowly weaning them off tens as that opioid tone increased for example um but i wondered if you had any sort of sort of clinical insight from what you looked at there about how we might take someone in our clinic who we've decided is appropriate for that exercise how do we how do we get that going how do we get that that, that moving forward yeah yeah thank you matt well um firstly we need to recognize that it is a challenge so there's no not going to be any kind of shortcuts or, or quick wins but uh, i'd like to um i'm trying to just find the actual study but they studied patients with pain related to arthritic uh, arthritic knees osteoarthritis of the knee now whereas those patients would often be categorized in 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 the group that has a negative response to exercise what they found is 
if patients had a pain flare when they did their osteoarthritic knee exercises, what they found is over time, those pain flares reduced. So there we could again reference the opioid tone. Maybe that's a mechanism where sticking to the plan leads to a reduction in pain flare and leads to actually getting the pain relief that they were looking for, but it doesn't happen on the first go. It takes commitment to the exercise and therefore the acceptance of pain. So therefore pain education becomes paramount to allowing that to happen. If the patient is willing, it's okay to say to patients suffering from persistent pain that, that, it's, that it's acceptable to exercise in the presence of pain. That's easy for us to say, easy for us to voice, but it's not an easy thing for many patients to, to properly accept. So if we can help patients to understand and accept that, then maybe they can go past the session one, session two, session three, then the pain flares a bit less, and then we're on that positive road, they understand, and it's that trajectory that can work really well. But the challenge can be getting over that initial hurdle of them accepting that and, and moving forwards. Uh, in terms of other interventions, there's some research suggesting that you could combine some uh, medications like serotonin reuptake inhibitors to uh, lift mood and have an inf in input on the a change on the inf inflammations and um, uh, pain perception. So combining it citalopram or sertraline, combining those medications with exercise, again, may help to make exercise more regular so that the body's natural systems can take over. So that's an interesting, uh, because that would involve, that would involve, you know, uh, communication and interplay with the, with the GP and with the rehabber and the therapists. And I, I like that idea. Using things like a TENS machine, I haven't thought of that personally. I'm not a, um, I don't use TENS machines that much. I've played around with them early in my career, but I never found patients found them that user-friendly. But but I know that people do use them. Um, but it was you know, it was sorry to jump in there, Daniel. It was a point that so the other member on the panel at the time was Adam Meekins, uh, and if you're familiar with with Adam Meekins, you'll understand his likely reaction to the idea of using something like tens machines. Yeah, uh, but he he did he did uh, say at the end of the panel he was like maybe I need to revisit this for this kind of yeah. this kind of cohort. It was it was it was quite interesting because I must admit I'm I'm the same in that. It's a modality that's usually you find maybe in labor wards, if at all. And I haven't really seen it in, in sort of more a physiotherapy no. uh, sort of uh, or, or, or soft tissue therapy kind of um, environment. Yeah, I was thinking actually about that before you asked the question. And obviously, based on the title of the podcast and, and, and your listeners, that like, we know massage is a wonderful way to reduce pain. And we see, you know, all the time in clinics, our patients feeling less pain and moving easier following some soft tissue treatment, no matter how it's delivered. Uh, well, obviously, it does depend how it's delivered, as long as it's delivered therapeutically, should I say. <laughs> then if we, can, if we can say to the patient, look, now you can flex easier, you can lift your arm easier, you can do that child's pose yoga stretch easier. But perhaps we tend to just show the patient they can do that, teach it as an exercise, and then off they go and they, they might do it again tomorrow. Maybe we should capitalize more on that reduction in pain sensitivity right there and then so they do more of that exercise and complete more, more of the movement session right there in the clinic immediately after the soft tissue treatment. And what we've got there is a learning experience. We've got a form of exposure therapy where the patient 
does a movement that no longer hurts or hurts a lot less, they can move a lot further. So we don't have to explain to them they're learning without anything being said. They're learning that they can do that movement and they can do it again and again. And then that's a learning experience, which may lead to some desensitization of their central nervous system. And then may lead to a, a better outcome, a more lasting, robust outcome whilst they leave you and then, you know, come back next time to, to do some more. So whereas we could suggest a TENS machine to help them move with a bit less pain, I would think that the, 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 the therapeutic interaction between the therapist and the patient and the hands-on work, I would think that that would be a much more therapeutic thing to do than the use of a, a TENS machine. And I think it's what it all seems to be circling back round to, Daniel, is um, what really matters is that the client is able to do something consistently. So we find, you know, we're saying the specificity is less important. So we're finding something really that they enjoy that they you know we we know that they can do it at that slightly lower intensity so actually it can be a walk with the grandkids or or whatever it is that they're enjoying um and that actually we give them we help them find strategies to be consistent with it so you talk in your chapter in the book about education around flare-ups so actually addressing that before it even happens you know if you do go out for your walk and and, and we experience a flare-up how are we going to manage that and I guess from a massage therapist soft tissue therapist point of view we can we can be part of that as well can't we We, you know we can almost be look you know you're, you're coming to see me so you know that can be almost part without wanting to build reliance in them we want them to know there's other strategies as well but that can almost be part of their their management system for ensuring that consistency I guess yeah they're looking after themselves aren't they you know people go for a walk they go to the gym um they that you know coming to see their their massage therapist for various different reasons is is them looking after themselves which is so important for well-being and um and it's a it's an environment where they where they can share information they feel it's therapeutic of course they feel safe to move and they may be wanting to try some new movements but they want to do it with you and under your care to make sure that's okay again that shows them that that can be done and they can then transfer that into their you know into their everyday daily life we sit all the time in clinic don't we where people say well i was wondering you know could could i do this or could I, could I, and you say, well, yeah, sure. Let's see if we can replicate that in the clinic right now, that, that reaching, that twisting. It's that so lifting. often, isn't it? It's just, Sorry, no, it's so often, yeah. it's so often that position, permission to move, isn't it? Like, permission to you move. know, yeah. yeah. How often does someone come in and say, oh, well, I did everything you said, but, and I really wanted to try this, but I, I thought I'd wait and see you. And it's like, no, go ahead, go and explore it. And I think, yeah. I think, I think it's really important as well. I mean, one, one of the things that's, that's, that's coming through, which is, which is awesome. And we've mentioned a couple of times now is that education piece, you know, you, you, you mentioning to someone that, um, uh, who's got persistent pain that actually exercising the presence of pain is, is fine. It's safe. And we can discuss the kind of relative levels that they may expect of pain and when to stop and, and when to continue. And, and like you say, the education around the flare ups when they're not around their therapist or near clinic and they're out trying to enjoy a you know, real day, real life day. Um, I think that the, the the bit for me and and probably the 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 messaging that goes with kind of everything that we 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 talk about on the podcast is is that intervention in the clinic that that therapeutic intervention in the clinic needs to be uh, sort of paired with the education that 
what we're doing is we're desensitizing the pain. We're not changing anything physically in the structure so that when that's when that person comes in and receives that treatment and then can do the movement and and I love that idea actually that you would almost plan your session around you know for example the first 15 minutes is going to be hands on treatment because then we can use the next 40 minutes to to absolutely work in that newly acquired more comfortable state where we've reduced your your sensation of pain through whatever mechanisms manual therapies working through but what I'd be really keen on is that person not then thinking, oh, I can only do my exercises after I've had that manual therapy intervention. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it, it just goes hand in hand with the rest of the education piece that you're giving. It's like, this is an opportunity we're going to maximize, but you should be able to achieve this yourself at home as well. Um, you know, and, and we can discuss ways of doing such. Um, yeah. I think One way in the, in the book, that uh, I liked one of the chapters was on uh, personality matching. Mm-hmm. And uh, I refer to the work of um, Susanna Brew, who wrote a book called The Eight Colors of Fitness. And she developed that off the back of the Myers Briggs personality matching system, which is used a lot in, in corporate America, I believe. Uh, <laughs> I've been exposed to that. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> the the eight, color, eight Colors of Fitness is a, a really nice, easy-to-use, uh, friendly approach to personality matching or also more likely exercise matching, if you will. And I like to use that because it allows you to work out what patients might like to do and how they might like to be given those ideas. So... I might get a patient to go home and do the online eight colors of fitness questionnaire. And it's nice that I ask them to do something that doesn't involve exercise. So they often like that. And when they come back, they might say, Oh, I was a, I was a blue or I was a green. And you know, this means I like formal exercise and to be given structural, this means I like more spontaneous exercise with other people. And they may agree or disagree with it, but it sparks a conversation around what they like to do rather than what they think they should do. And then that helps you to understand what's going to work for them. Maybe they are a reps and sets person. Maybe they need, you know, they need, they need three exercises and they need to do three sets and they want to know exactly how much rest in between and it's written down and they're going to do that and there's no nonsense and that's fine. And that, what, that's what some people want, that kind of regimented approach. Whereas others may prefer to get outside. They may enjoy swimming or, or cycling or walking and they may want to to do those things and if you try and give them something too structured it's just not going to fit in with their with their daily life with some patients with back pain you may suggest that walking is good and evidence-based and they'll be over the moon because they love walking and that's great they'll go and walk and their, their back pain will reduce happy you know they're very happy with that with other patients they come to see you you're a specialist you're an exercise specialist you know you've read a book you've done a course you know what you're talking about and you suggest to them to go for a walk well, they walked in in the first place. So they're going to be not very happy. They're not going to consider you a very credible professional if you've just said, go for a walk. You know, what about special exercises? Many patients come to us for special exercises and we can give them such. But, uh, you know, it depends on what they're looking for. And, you know, you, you can imagine for some patients, one thing's going to fit for others. It, it, um, it won't fit. So we could, you know, core stability exercises, the research shows they're not any better than general exercises, which is fine. But if your patient is expecting some core stability exercises and that's what they want, 
then for that individual, they do matter and they are far better than a general exercise plan because you're matching their expectations. And that's a significant part of the therapeutic intervention, of course. It reminds me of a quote. And uh, to my shame, rather than spending uh, lockdown uh, writing a book, um, I have been trying to complete Netflix, or in this case, the Disney Channel. Uh, and so I've been catching up on Scrubs uh, as, a, as a revisit to my uni days. And um, there's a, a quote from Dr. Cox, which is that statistics mean nothing to the individual. Uh, and I think, you know, that speaks to exactly what you're saying there. It's, it's we understand that, for example, core exercises are no better than uh, regular exercise or, or other normal exercises for, um, uh, for low back pain. But if your individual is expecting core exercises and there is a uh, a real sort of psychosocial element perhaps to their back pain and an expectation that a core exercise is what you're going to give them and that perhaps they're not actually going to improve if that's not what is given to them, then absolutely taking that individual into account and maybe giving them a few sit-ups or a plank or something to start with, then feeding into them that actually they should be doing something a bit more general as they go forward is, yeah, is is spot on. So, sorry, I had to, I had to throw that in. That, that just, Scrubs. Was that all on Scrubs? That was all. <laughs> Who knew? We just needed to watch Scrubs. We yeah. may have elaborated slightly, but no, the, the, the statistics means nothing to an individual. That was from Scrubs. Yeah. So that brings us really nicely to the our favourite part, which is the theory to practice. So, Dan, what would be your three elements that you will, three advice, three suggestions you would like to give to our listeners to take home and uh, apply them clinically as soon as they, they open the doors to their, uh, to their practice? Okay, well, um, I've got some suggestions. I may not be able to stick to three, but you'll have to stop me. Please do, please go. one is to try to let your patients choose their preferred mode of exercise and the next one is patients that don't have a good relationship with exercise perhaps start with some breathing awareness drills and breathing re-education something we haven't discussed today but that is a physical thing but it's very different than of course exertional exercise so that's often a nice introduction to work with patients physically but without having the physicality of traditional exercise approaches. So I want to just share that one. And um, another thing, so much here that we've been talking through, of course, is exercise itself is a learning experience for patients. So as much as we can exercise, as, we, as much as we can educate by explaining things to patients, Sometimes just having them experience something physically, a simple movement, can be enough of an experience for them to really understand what they're capable of achieving and break down some of those movement barriers. And as Becky said, give them permission to move, which I think is a great tagline. I should stick that on a T-shirt or start a podcast by the same name. Uh, another thing we haven't had a chance to talk about is I noticed that many patients seem to have an unprescribed ritualistic intake of analgesic medication and if we consider the fact that movement and exercise can reduce pain 
then it brings into question whether patients really need to take ibuprofen or paracetamol every single morning in order to get themselves going, when actually it may be the actual getting going that is providing the pain relief, but they mistakenly associate that with the ritualistic ingestion of unprescribed medication. I use the word unprescribed because I wouldn't want people to suggest that their patients stop taking what has been prescribed to them. I'm talking about unprescribed medication here. So it's just breaking down those ritualistic barriers that patients may have and building in more positive ones based around exercise. There's so much more we could say and talk about, but I'll, I'll stop there. So Dan, if um, if people want to find out more about yourself or the, the course in this, then where can they go? Where can they find more about you and what you're doing? Certainly. Well, the physio channel on YouTube is my main output. There's lots of educational videos on there. There's the one on post-acute COVID-19 that we've talked about today. And there's one on how I explain pain to my patients because it's a real challenge to try and explain pain to patients. So I try to write it down and say it in as, as concise a way as possible. Uh, so there's other videos on there that hopefully would be helpful. So the physio channel is the name that I go by. and YouTube is my main platform, also on Instagram. And the course, Exercise for Pain Relief, there's one running in uh, this month in April. And that is hosted on the education section of the rock tape website rocktape.co.uk it's uh, of course not a taping course and um <laughs> i don't think any tape appears in the course but it's hosted no tape has been harmed uh, either no no tape has been harmed no but there's always some to hand if we need it uh, so yeah that's um that's that's me i'd like to say thank you very much matt Anna maria and becky for having me on it's been absolute pleasure and the I, time can see, I can see some more chats coming coming uh, coming up are we going to have some questions from people now or not not now no but we absolutely can do for next time so uh yeah. guys if you uh, if you have some specific questions you want to put forward to dan then uh, get them sent in and um we will we will put them to him uh the next time we drag him back onto the podcast so, so no, thank you very much daniel thank you thank you Matt. my pleasure Thank you, Anne-Marie. Becky. Thank you, Dan. And that's it for us for this episode. So thank you to Daniel Lawrence for once again for joining us. And uh, thank you guys for listening. That was... That was a conversation that could have gone a lot of different directions, as you notice, with our uh, our brief segue into uh, even into long COVID uh, or acute COVID-19 syndrome partway through. And... Uh, all three of us were saying afterwards that we had reams of questions that we've been scribbling down madly during that conversation that we just ran out of time to uh, to uh, put forward to Daniel. If you have any questions that you want to put forward to Daniel uh, or indeed us, then email us at massage at physio-matters.com or you can get hold of us on the usual uh, social media channels, uh, Facebook, Instagram at The Massage Collective. And we will see you again soon. Bye for now.